Hello, hello. Welcome to Stories Between the Lines, a podcast. Stories connect us as humans. Everything we see and feel has a story. Are they interesting stories? Well, that depends on how it is told. This is your host, Nandini. In today's episode, I bring to you the ritualistic stories about the art of connecting dots. It's known as kolam in the Indian language Tamar. Now you may wonder what's there to talk so much about kolam or what's the story behind this old art form? Well, listen in. This episode will peel the layers of this art and uncover its deep significance. You'd be surprised at what you're going to find out. Kolam is an artful design that connects the dots with lines to create a beautiful geometric pattern. Each morning on the doorsteps of many Indian homes, especially in Tamil Nadu, a state in South India, women draw this traditional art with rice flour at the entrance of their homes. With the ground as a canvas, hands as a paintbrush and rice flour as the paint, this ancient form of art is a visual treat. Kolam during my younger days was just another ritualistic tradition. This art at the entryway of homes was a symbol of wellness and considered auspicious. My mom described it as an invitation to Goddess Lakshmi into the house first thing in the morning. Amongst the Hindu gods and goddesses, Goddess Lakshmi is considered a symbol of prosperity peace and happiness and of course wealth. Anything that emits good vibes is connected to Goddess Lakshmi. Growing up in India, I've watched women gracefully hold the container filled with the white rice flour in one hand, their body bent and with nimble fingers pinch the rice flour between the fingers to magically weave geometric pattern. This is like yogic art, a Surya Namaskar to honor Mother Earth first thing in the morning. It is December, which means cold, wintry weathers in many parts of the world. In South India, especially in the state of Tamil Nadu, this winter month is called Margari. This year, the first day of Margari month commenced on December 16th and will end on January 13th. 2022. Most of the year in this part of India is hot and humid. Should I say extremely hot and humid. But the weather this time of the year is pleasant. Soothing temperatures in 80 degrees Fahrenheit. That is a cool 26 degrees centigrade. Yes, this is winter in this part of the world. Until last year, yes, the year when the world went indoors, I never really thought much about this beautiful art form beyond the realm of connecting the dots to create a pattern, sort of like solving a puzzle. Then one day, in the midst of all the social distancing, I found myself mindlessly drawing a column on a piece of paper. It was so therapeutic. It did wonders to take my disturbed mind away from the relentless pandemic news shown on TV. Soon, I started drawing column on home decors, on coasters, wooden trays, gift bags, 
etc and gave them as gifts during uh, the sera and diwali this new found interest seeded the theme for this episode of the stories between the lines podcast during my research on kolam i was simply amazed by the various dimensions of this ritual art from form that goes beyond just connecting the dots so i am super excited to present this episode in two segments in the first segment of this podcast i am delighted and honored to welcome dr vijaya nagarajan to this podcast about kolam dr nagarajan is an associate professor of theology religious studies and the program of environmental studies at the university of san francisco her debut book feeding a thousand souls is an exploration of the kolam This book is the first comprehensive book in English about Kolam that helps discover this art form for its historical, mathematical, social and cultural context. Dr. Nagarajan has written this book from the heart, laced with personal details of her own family tradition on Kolam and how this art has been an integral part of her life right from childhood. which she spent in india and then subsequently when she and her family immigrated to the united states she has been a voice for so many women especially women of tamil origin living in the traditional south indian cities like tanjavur madurai chidambaram and other temple towns who create this art every morning even to this day Thank you so much Dr Nagarajan for taking the time from your very busy schedule to talk about Kolam today. It is an honor to have you as a guest on this podcast. Thank you for having me Nandini. This is a joy to be with you. The pleasure is all mine professor. As a child this art was more of a ceremonial or cultural form of art you know connecting the dots with squiggly lines and then um uh, drawing lines around the dots was like solving a puzzle it was a routine to see my aunts my mom and women in general draw from simple to more elaborate uh, ones on festival days every time i see an ex- extravagant kolam it means it's a special day so mm-hmm. when i first read the title of your book feeding a thousand souls uh, an exploration of kolam in the context of women rituals and the ecology in india it kind of uh, made me stop and think about the significance of kolam beyond the you know the usual boundaries of culture and tradition uh, as a child i would love to watch these little uh, sparrows these birds known as kuruvis in tamil as the day goes by these birds would happily perch themselves on the kolam and kind of diligently nibble the rice flour that was used to draw the kolam that morning and my mother once explained to me that the rice flour used for kolam is actually serves as food for these birds i don't uh, ever remember her mixing any color or any cause rice is a safe and staple food for all living beings i suppose in your book you talk about the debt humans owe to animals since we have taken away the land from them to build homes and create a living for ourselves 
what was your thought process for the title of this book? And um, why did you pick Kolam as a topic? <laughs> Those are two beautiful questions. And um, feeding a thousand souls, you know, it was something that Tamil women, whenever I would ask them what were some of the underlying reasons for making the Kolam, many women would say to me, they would give me the standard reasons, you know, to welcome Lakshmi into the household, to celebrate auspiciousness, um, all those things that you normally hear. And then they would kind of lower their voice to a whisper and they would say, but you know, the real reason we do the kolam. And I would say, what is it? And they would say, to feed a thousand souls. And so there was a way in which that theme kept coming up as a kind of underlying in a way, not quite a secret, but a kind of um, deeper reason why the kolam is made. And so, and as I observed the kolam, you know, over these 50 years, really since I was a child, you know, I've noticed, especially in the 90s and 80s, 80s and 90s, um, that there has been a shift from using rice flour uh, to stone powder because it's generally cheaper. Um, and also all the colored powders to sort of, imitate the Rangoli of the North. And so part of the reason I chose this title was I wanted to have the sort of underlying kind of subtextual uh, reason uh, for doing the kolam and, and really uh, privileging that um, to remind ourselves that one of the first ritual acts, and this is something that, you know, you mentioned that making a kolam is like solving a puzzle uh, and that is true. And also even writing this book and talking to women, hundreds and hundreds of women throughout Tamil Nadu over a period of, uh, you know, 20 years um, in villages and towns and cities throughout Tamil Nadu and even traveling throughout India as well and looking at other women's ritual art forms. Um, it really struck me that this book is a kind of um, trying to figure out a puzzle for myself that what does the kolam actually mean, um, you know, beyond its ritual and aesthetic significance. And so that was part of the reason why I, I titled it Feeding a Thousand Souls, because the more I listened to women, the more I paid attention to the kolam in its ritual context, I thought, oh, this is really a very profound, um, beautiful reason for why the kolam is made. And it took me many years to figure out the sort of underlying reason that there was a, even feeding a thousand souls, I couldn't finish the book until I figured out, okay, what does, where does that come from? Certainly it's in the oral history, right? Of women's conversations um, and dialogues and interviews that I did, but is there a written origin um, to the oral tradition. And so part of the difficulty of doing this column work was that it was mostly in the oral tradition. There was very few literary references, um, Tamil or English, to follow. There were a few, and they were like sort of golden spots that I followed, you know, mm -hmm. throughout the book. But mainly it was really learning from elder women. Um, you know, so I started this work when I was in my 20s, and the women I spoke with were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know. And it was what I really, what really unlocked it for me was the idea of the gift of food. That when, that the first ritual act of a household um, that a woman householder expresses through making the kolam 
is to feed a thousand souls. Now, why does that matter? Why the thousand souls? And why feeding? And why animals? Um, and part of the reason is that a dharmic duty is to feed a thousand souls, but it doesn't have to be human. It can be animal souls. Right. One of the things I found in a third century footnote of a Dharma Shastra text was that when a house is built, when we humans build a, build a home for ourselves, that it's one of the greatest sins that we can do in the world. And it's a sin that can never be made up for, no matter all the good dharmic acts we might do. Because the house that we're building, the space was not really ours to build around. It was occupied by other species and other animals who had already built their homes there. So we had to make all these animals homeless in order to create our home. And the idea was that the kolam was a small act of reparations, daily reparations for all those animals that we kicked out of their homes to build our own home. And when I discovered that near the end of the journey of, of figuring out the puzzle of this book, it just moved me so deeply, Nandini. I was, you know, I've been an environmentalist since I was 12 years old and I've, um, I, I've you know, studied and taught, you know, um, many different religious traditions and the, their relationships to the environment as sacred and the consequences of that knowledge and idea and practice. And I'd never run into something like this before. And I thought, here is something that's 2,300 years old in our own tradition that teaches us, that tells us something that we need as a clue for living in the world today. So the kolam I really see, and I didn't really see this when I started the work on the kolam. I mean, this is a life work, mm -hmm. <laughs> a life work, as you say, and, it, and for me as well. But as we are standing at, the, at a cliffhanger point for the human civilization, and what we are to do tomorrow and next month and next year in terms of climate and the environment, it, it, really, it really behooves us to really pay attention to that level of sensitivity to the world around us. And I think this is where something like the column can help us remember um, you know, these teachings um, of our elders. Um, and I think another aspect of that is also Budevi, you know, that that is more commonly understood that, you know, we're doing it to honor um, and ask for forgiveness to Budevi, the goddess of the earth, for all the ill-mannered actions that we're doing on her, both consciously and unconsciously throughout the day. So uh, that's also what the kolam, in addition to, of course, Lakshmi and bringing in the goddess Lakshmi into the household. And I think part of it for me you know, when you say, you know, when you ask the second question about, um, you know, why and how I started the Kolam work, um, you know, for me, it was a wonderful philosopher named Ivan Illich, um, who's written a lot of books on energy and equity and, and, and tools for conviviality and um, from the 70s and 80s and 60s. Um, and he was working on a beautiful book called H2O and the Waters of Forgetfulness. Um, and he was working on a footnote on women's virtual art. And so, uh, he was doing a series of lectures and, and my husband and I had gone down there and we were staying with him. And, you know, you know, one morning or one dinner conversation, he said, Vijaya, do you know anything about the Kolam? And, you know, I'm so embarrassed, but this is what I said to him. This was in 1984. And I said, oh yeah, the Kolam is just something that women do and that my mother does. 
but there's really nothing to much to say about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was ritualistic, right? I mean, that's why yeah, exactly. every day you get up, you put a cola, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, what you had said about your own perception of the column is exactly how I perceived the column in 1984. And I said to him, but I said, I'll make you a column in the morning. Uh, and but you can ask me any questions you want about it, and I'll try to answer them. You know, and he's one of the most profound philosophers, uh, you know, of probably the 20th century. And so, you know, he, we talked for three hours, you know, from six to nine in the morning. And every single question he had, I was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You know, but something about that conversation really woke up, woke me up, in a way, to seeing the column as much larger as a mirror. As a, as a sign, as a symbol, as a container, really of so many philosophical ideas. And I also, besides being an environmentalist uh, from the age of 12, I also am a feminist from the age of 12. <laughs> and so I was always, you know, thinking about what is women's voice in the world and why are we silenced? And I guess for me, the column was a remarkable way for me personally to go back in a sense back to India and it, it gave me the the almost like a arrow of time it gave me a way to return back to India um, and to relearn the Tamil language in a more fuller way in order to be able to learn about the Kolam um, and to study medieval Tamil literature and to get a PhD in uh, you know, um, in South Asian studies. Um, and so the column was, it was like a bridge to another world, really. Mm-hmm. And I just um, feel so grateful that that I took that path. Um, and also another uh, event was the Smithsonian. Um, I was a interpreter and lecturer. In 1985, there was a big festival of India. So my mother and I were invited, my mother was invited to do the columns for that um, for two weeks. And so from nine to five, my mother would be making columns on a big platform uh, in the heart of Washington, D.C., in the heart of the mall wow. um, at the Smithsonian. And I was 20, just turned 24. Um, and I was, and my mother is deaf. So um, I was partly there to interpret for her um, and to translate for her. Um, and I just felt people's interest. And it was the first time that, you know, there was a way in which I kept the Tamil culture in the household. And outside was American culture, right? And mm-hmm. when I was growing up, and this was the first time that in a way, they both could come together, you know, in 1985. And then that also opened my eyes. And um, and I got to meet one of the seeds that Illich had actually showed me, the Stella Cramrish, and she was at a conference there and I got to talk to her. And then she said, well, I only wrote up what I know if you want to know more, you have to return back to India and ask women. And so that gave me the direction of, you know, to do the research, to do my PhD dissertation on the Kolam, and then um, turn it into a book. Uh, it's been a long journey and with many, many obstacles and, and a lot of people, you know, uh, not seeing the importance of it, you know, mm-hmm. initially. Um, people saying, really, you're going to do something on the Kolam? Why would you yeah. do that? <laughs> you know, yeah. So I'm yeah. like, yeah, you know, I, I thought the same thing, but that's really not true. <laughs> you know, I found yeah. that there's a lot more layers to it. And and, uh, and the mathematics was amazing to discover, um, you know, uh, you know, to to learn about and to go and interview amazing uh, mathematicians 
uh, in India, in Madras, um, who'd been working on this and, you know, that I got to meet and, and talk with and interview. And I mean, I just have like two boxes of materials on math and the column. So there's actually somebody who, a mathematician who is now working, a woman mathematician uh, who's working on a book on, um, or a series of articles on math and the column, which I'm really excited about. So my chapter is really a summary uh, of sort of some of the key ideas that I um, learned from other people's work, you know, but I thought that was also a very hard chapter as well. And I'm, you know, in the chapter, that chapter is called embodied mathematics. So I'm really yeah. interested in how our bodies, I mean, the colon is an embodied practice. It's something you wake up in the morning. It's like, a, it's, I almost think of it as a kind of female yoga parallel mm -hmm. to the Sutta Namaskar, you know? Yeah. Um, and when you're watching women bend down and, uh, you know, curling their spine in a sense and to make the designs. Um, and I actually had the privilege to watch it in the dark, you know, in a village, because I thought, is there something with electricity that might've changed the kolam? Because it was usually done before sunrise. Yeah, you think kolam is a more of a visual art, right? You, yeah. you see, you, you need eyes to... Right, exactly. Yeah. But one of the things I discovered was, you know, um, women would draw it in the, the light of kerosene lamps mm -hmm. in the dark. I mean, I could barely see. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, this is actually a kind of dance of the body memory that the trace leftover is the cola. Mm hmm in some ways. So there's just been, it's been like an unspooling of, of knowledge. Um, yeah, you call it eth ethno-mathematics. I've heard of ethno-music, um, right. you know, and how it connects uh, even to uh, students who want to pursue uh, medicine as a career. And when I read this word ethno-mathematics in your book, and I was like very curious to know how that plays a role um, in column. Yeah, well, there's a whole culture. I mean, there's a whole subject of study, um, ethnomathematics within the field of anthropology um, that ties together culture and mathematics. Um, and so what I did was there, there's an amazing woman, Marsha Asher, who's done some very primary work on, on the column in mathematics. And she really integrated into the field of uh, ethnomathematics. Um, and it's really how culture shapes our perception of mathematics and also how the principles of mathematics can have cultural intent and form. Um, and so one of the fascinating things about the kolam, which is very unusual in terms of ethnomathematics, is that it has actually served for the last, I would say, 50 years, since the 60s, um, as a space of discovery for Western-trained mathematicians. Mm -hmm. So this is unusual for a folk art to actually serve as a stimulus to discoveries in West, Western mathematics. So for example, picture languages and array grammars and matrices. So that's part of what um, has, has been stimulated by the, especially the dot columns, you know, and, the, and um, not, the, not the kata columns or the other columns, but, and the figurative columns, but really the dot columns, the puli columns. So that's, that was really fast and fractals as well. So you see that these, that when, when women are making the columns, when they're making these geometric columns, that even though they may not be analyzing them in terms of Western mathematical ideas, 
they are embodying those Western mathematical ideas in the very drawings themselves. Exactly. They, yeah. During those days, there was no Google, you know, to to copy a column design. I used to always wonder, you know, the precision of yes. these women, especially in villages, you know, yes. they had to think, how do I connect the dots without overrunning another uh, another squiggly <laughs> line you know the, uh, it, they definitely there's a principle of mathematics that existed this was like centuries ago when there was no internet or or, or google to research these things so yeah. they had to actually think and come up with these patterns that is equivalent of a geometric equation or a you know a pattern yes exactly yeah picture languages that's what it's in the mathematical theory, that's what it's partly overlapping, you know. Um, the other the other aspect that I found really fascinating that overlapped between mathematicians and women's discourses and languages around the column was the notion of infinity. Mathematici mathematicians are interested in like how many designs there are, you know, et cetera, you know. But what women would say to me is that, and this was an amazing conceptualization, I thought, and this was actually in the non-electrified village that a woman told me this uh, near Tinalveli, is she said that when we draw the kolam on the front of our thresholds, it is, especially the geometric ones and the pulley columns, it is as if we're catching a piece of a fold of cloth of infinity and wow. we're bringing it down in front of our house for just that morning time. Um, and so it, it just was stunning. You know, I, I just, I remember just gasping when she said that, you know, um, because it was so eloquent and so poetic um, and, and how she was imagining um, the, it was like as if the geometric column, she could see that it was a cloth that went on infinite in the universe. Wow. That's and profound it, it, indeed, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, it just, with these kind of things would happen all the time with, uh, you know, the elder women. And so I guess that's what I found um, so remarkable, you know, was just this opportunity, this chance to uh, go and research and really listen to elder women and what they were saying about the column and what it meant to them. This book is really a kind of bridge between those hundreds and hundreds of elder women that I talked with throughout villages and towns um, and the wealth of knowledge that they had that wasn't written down anywhere. Mm -hmm. And um, so my, my, it was, you know, a lot of work to travel and I mean, to get the grants and to, you know, to, mm -hmm. and, and to get, you know, to be able to go do the research and then do the translation of, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of transcripts in Tamil I think I had like five to 10,000 pages um, you know, in, wow. in, in transcriptions of all the interviews. And so then it took years to translate that and then try to figure out what were the most important aspects of what they had said. In the, in the pre-COVID era, when I used to ever visit India, I found that um, it's it's not so much of an everyday tradition anymore. It's become a the column as an art itself. It's be, it is commercialized. I've started seeing more of it. 
on uh, maybe saris or uh, other home decors or stuff, but as a ritualistic art form, uh, it has to be pre preserved, at least in the urban areas with the, you know, with globalization, with, um, you know, apartment complexes, mushrooming everywhere. Space is also a problem for people to continue with this and with internet and TV and a 10,000 different channels, the, uh, the whole ritual of getting up in the morning as a first yeah. You know, duty, you talked talked about, you know, a duty to our mother earth, all that, the finer elements of this art form is, I think, diminishing. I, I know you've been to all of these very historic temple towns. I'm sure mm -hmm. some of it is preserved there, but in the urban areas, I feel like it's almost become extinct. Yeah, well, also, or reduced to a plastic stick-on column that right. you right. once and it lasts for a few months <laughs> and then maybe right. the next Diwali or the next festival you might peel it off and put another plastic stick on column well the purpose of the environmental duties associated with this is uh, is is uh, not being followed anymore you know yeah yeah no that's true and that's the reason I called it feeding a thousand souls because yeah. I really wanted that aspect of the column to really come forward because I think it's something that we really need to know and need to understand, you know, how do we become really, it's like a kind of a, a, a lost training, right? Um, and how do we recover uh, in our contemporary way, um, these sensitivities, because part of it has to do with time, right? Temporality, you know, when we're in the modern world, which all of us are, you know, we are, have to be speed queens, you know, we have, yeah. to, we have to multitask, we have to not just yeah. do one task, but we have to do several tasks at the same time, or that's what's demanded of us, you know, parallel processing, right? And so there is, there, you know, here's a, here's a, a ritual art form that really like builds in meditation, builds in yoga, yeah. you know, yeah. in, um, and you can do like 30 second columns, you know, you can do simple, very simple columns. So it's not, that you have to do the elaborate golems all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. I, and I think that's part of trying to bring forth slowness, you know? You know, we need a slow time movement. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even if you spend 10, 15 minutes drawing a column, it gives you a good mental, physical, emotional, sensual, all kinds of stimulations. Mm -hmm. And yet we decide to go to the gym to get a workout or, you know, <laughs> uh, you know our ancestors preferred these simple ritualistic acts to, you know, unknowingly or unknowingly build it into their everyday life. Yeah. And I think it's also, it was a way of communication. You know, it was a way yeah. of telling people, I mean, that's what this book is. You know, every chapter is like a spoke of a wheel mm -hmm. um, of the meaning, underlying meanings of the column. So, um, you know, rituals, thresholds, andal, designs, mm -hmm. embodied mathematics, column competitions, embedded ecologies, marrying trees and global warming, and then rituals of generosity and feeding a thousand souls. So I think, um, you know, that's part of what, um, you know, is giving the layers, right, of the meaning, of, of the underlying meaning of the column. Speaking of auspiciousness, you know, yes. I would uh, often wince when I see some column designs uh, being disturbed, 
you know, by somebody stepping on it or, you know, even uh, visitors to the house, you know, my mm -hmm. mom used to always say, don't step on the column. So I used to like kind of skip and hop around the column. And uh, some people would actually take offense if you kind of disturb their uh, column. So, right. uh, you know, so much of it that I would like and also um, in movies, at least in the older, older movies, you know, to de depict something inauspicious or if something bad is going to happen in, in, a, in a future scene, the director would create a scene with a pail of water being poured over the column. Do you think this is a true sentiment or is it uh, just used in movies? I know you've been to so many, um, you know, traditional towns to people consider this inauspicious if i know every day morning you do get up to pour water over the over the yesterday's column and start mm -hmm. all over again right right well you know it's interesting that you say that because i think uh, going back to the earlier thread of the conversation of, of communication that that there was a way in which the column was an indicator of the state of being of the household mm -hmm. so if someone had died during the night this is what women would tell me, is if someone had died in the middle of the night, they wouldn't put a column. And immediately the other villagers, when they woke up and they didn't see a column in another neighbor's house, they knew that something untoward may have happened. You know, I mean, it could be that the woman was in a menstrual state or there was no woman that was available to do the column, um, but it, it also could mean that there was a death in the family. So they would immediately find out and they would immediately start serving that household, bringing food, whatever needed to be done. And so there was no words that had to be spoken by the family that had experienced this tragedy. It was as if the street knew what to do. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an incredible like ritual. How does one even call it? Like social communication web of relationship that is embodied within the column itself. Right. So that and this is even home. before cell phones or telephones where you could just call somebody if you're right. in trouble. Right. Yeah, exactly. But it, the thing that struck me here is that the family or the household that's experiencing the tragedy doesn't have to tell anyone, this is what's happened and I need this. Right. It's as if it's already known that if this has happened, what that household actually needs. Yeah. I mean, what more represents community than that? The social cultural dimension you've added to the yeah. column yeah. as well. Yeah. And you mentioned Anda in previously mm -hmm. uh, a little while ago, and we are in the month of Marguerite season. Yeah, and uh, Andal and the month of Marguerite are synonymous in Tamil Nadu. Andal, for people who uh, are not from Tamil Nadu, is the ninth century Tamil poet and the most ardent devotee of Lord Vishnu. She's like a mirror of South India. At a very, very young age, she composed a soul-stirring poetry, popularly known as Tirupave, and dedicated them to Lord Vishnu. Uh, he's also known as Perumal in Tamil. And uh, the, the column designs are elevated to a really much higher level during this month to create a festive uh, atmosphere and to celebrate the season. And uh, you, I think you've dedicated a whole chapter on Andal and Kolam. So yes. do you think yes. this art form originated during um, that time period, like ninth century or even earlier? Well, that's a great question. You know, I think that we have references 
um, even as far back as Vedic times, that designs were drawn on the ground to honor the sun, um, Surya. And so the, the god Surya. And many women also said that the column should be finished before the first rays of the sun hit the front threshold of the household. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of why it had to be done in the dark. Um, and so, of course, you know, the sun is at its lowest point in the month of Marguerite. So in some ways, this month of Marguerite is like the hour before um, the light comes, changes, right? Um, so I think uh, both the Nachar Tirmari, um, which Andal composed, and the Tirpave, there are references to what we think of as columns, but they're called mandalas, which is a Sanskrit word for, mm -hmm. um, you know, for ritual designs. Um, but the word kolam, the first reference I could find was actually in the 12th century, you know, in a, um, in a stone tablet of, uh, in, in Leslie Orr's, one of her footnotes of, she found that there was actually a, a statement that a temple had dedicated a certain amount of funds to pay for the rice flour that women would use to make the kolam in that temple. <laughs> Okay. So somebody had donated, you know, patron had donated some funds for that rice flour in the 12th century. So that's really fascinating. That was like the first reference. But obviously, by, by then, it become a more of an everyday practice. Um, and I think with what the Andal chapter for me is really um, my search for understanding, because many women said to me, you must go to Andal. So I went to Shriviliputur and I went there a couple of times and hung out with the women there and really asked them about the relationship between Andal and the Kolam. And so that's what I report on in that chapter. Um, and then I also do an analysis of sort of why does Andal, the figure of Andal connect to the Kolam? You know, are there metaphorical resonances between the two worlds? Um, and so I talk about, you know, forgiveness um, because here's Andal giving a garland to Vishnu that she's already worn and tried out, yeah. um, but that Vishnu loves, even though it's it's polluted, so called by her sweat, but it's imbued with her innocence and her um, desire to give the best to Vishnu, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, the same thing with in the terms of forgiveness, um, because Vishnu gives forgives her, doesn't even think of you know the you know adores that she's giving her used garland. And the same way, you know, we ask for forgiveness for the earth goddess for using and burdening her throughout the day with the kolam. Um, and so I think that's, uh, you know, and the whole fields of generosity that's activated by both stories. Um, so I talk about that. And I also talk about waking up, like Andal talks about waking up to the divine in the month of Marguerite. Mm -hmm. And I think the kolam is also a kind of generative uh, act of waking up. You know, you, it's the first act of the day that you do, that you're waking up into yourself for that day through the making of the column. Like you might be very sleepy at the beginning of making the yeah. column, but then as you're making the column, you're slowly waking up. And that's very similar to Andal's calling us to wake up yeah. to the divine in our lives. Um, so yeah, I loved doing that chapter. That was really, and I loved Andal even as a child because like you said, she's so much like Mira and that she's forgiven for her flaws, you know, mm -hmm. uh, by Vishnu. And so I always felt like in some ways as a child, you know, whether I was in India or in America, um, you know, you don't always learn the full set of rules. Mm -hmm. So I always felt like if your intention was good, that, that the divine would forgive you just as the divine had forgiven Andal. <laughs> yeah.
You mentioned uh, the names Mandana. I mean, Kolam is uh, not only of significance to Tamil Nadu, although it's very, the, the art form itself using the rice flour is very significant for of Tamil Nadu, but it's equally, the, the similar form of art is uh, popular in other parts of India as well. And it's known by different names. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think uh, covering all of these different styles would be like a lifelong project. So you've, you've, you said you focus only on Kolam. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with uh, these other variations of uh, Kolam? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I mean, I, my initial idea when I started was to actually do all the different women's ritual art forms, right? Oh, wow. the and then I and then I slowly realized, no, you know, Kolam was was you know was going to take my life itself. I couldn't give, you know. Uh, but I did travel to Rajasthan. I traveled to Bengal. Uh, I studied uh, the Mandanas in Rajasthan a bit, and I studied the Alp Alpanas in Bengal. Um, there is Mugus in Andhra Pradesh, Chitta in Orissa, and Rangoli, of course, which we're more familiar with in Karnataka, Gujarat, and Maharashtra, and all over India. Um, and then, you know, beyond India, you know, what really fascinated me also is that there are Navajo sand paintings. Uh, those are made by medicine men, you know, for healing illnesses in the Southwestern United States. There in Africa, there is something called the Sona ritual drawings that have very parallel mathematical properties to the dot columns. Um, and so that's in Angola. And then um, even as fascinating, there's something called Combs, C-A-U-M-S, or cocks, C-A-U-K-S, drawn on thresholds by pre-Christian women to protect the household from harm in Wales and England, which wow. were made even as late as the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So there's photographs in folklore journals of women calms in England, which are very different designs. They're not like the dot columns. They're not like anything design related, but the idea of making it on the threshold is there and still in the West, there's you know, the old custom of carrying the bride over the, uh, over the threshold. That, that bride was carried over the threshold that was drawn, that was made sacred initially by the comb itself. Um, so that's, that was also really fascinating to me that all throughout the world, not every culture, not every language, not every region, but many places, <clears throat> of course, the Tibetan sand paintings as well, um, that are done by men. So there are many, many ritual forms uh, that are parallel, which also give some light on the other ritual traditions as well. And even in Kerala, you know, they have this uh, art form with flowers, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And Spain and Italy also have flowers in, uh, you know, in certain uh, Catholic festivals that are done in the middle of the village street. I think, you know, the other thing that really um, strikes me about the Kolam is that the kolam, the drawing of the kolam on the thresholds of the houses is a boundary marker between the private household and the general commons, you know, the common land that's owned and, and you know, common um, areas. A lot of the knowledge about the commons, about how we take care of that which we hold in common is also in the oral traditions, you know, just like the Kolam knowledge is too. So mm -hmm. I think that's another, that's a project that I'm working on now is trying to understand like Porumboka, you know, trying to understand, you know, what are those areas um, that are beyond the Kolam, that are, that are the general shared land, forests, waters, and of course the atmosphere and the air. 
and how does each language in the world uh, understand the notion of that which we own together. Well, Dr. Nagarajan, your book, Feeding a Thousand Souls, an exploration of Kolam, is a lifetime's work on this uh, daily ritual of women. It's in a way a celebration of women, particularly in Tamil Nadu. You have uh, elevated this traditional art form by adding so many dimensions to it. Um, I'm sure every word, every page in this book is dear to you. You know, as we come to the end of this very um, alluring and, uh, uh, you know, insightful discussion on the art of Kolam, uh, can you, um, I don't know if it's even fair to ask you, read a paragraph or speak about a chapter that holds a special place in your heart? Sure. Um, I think I want to just uh, read something from the very beginning because I think that kind of gives a little bit of a situation of the of the of the column itself. And then I'd like to read something from the end. And I realized I didn't mention this, but I really want to, this this book is really a celebration of my mother and many, many mothers, you know, um, in Tamil Nadu you know, mm-hmm. and grandmothers and 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 um, so let me just begin. This is chapter one, and it just starts with beginnings. That's the name of the chapter. Even one's own tradition is not one's birthright. It has to be earned, repossessed. The old bards earned it by apprenticing themselves to the masters. One chooses and translates a part of one's past to make it present to oneself and maybe to others. One comes face to face with it, sometimes in faraway places, as I did. And this is a quote from A.K. Ramanujan, who's one of the most incredible translators of ancient uh, classical Tamil poetry and medieval Tamil Bhakti poetry as well. And I urge people to read his work. Just This is just a beginning of uh, the introduction. Every day in Southern India, millions of women wake, be- wake up before dawn, dreaming of drawing designs filled with their desires for the well-being of themselves, their communities, and the world. These designs, columns, on the thresholds of homes, temples, and businesses are ephemeral. They're gone a few hours later, rice dust on the feet of passers-by, blessing both the ritual drawers and those who see them. The column is created by Tamil women in Tamil Nadu, the southeastern state in India, and wherever Tamils have migrated, Northern India, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, South Africa, England, the United States, and elsewhere. In the Tamil language, the other classical language in India besides Sanskrit, the word kolam means beauty, form, play, disguise, and ritual design. This book is about these kolam designs and what they mean to the kolam who draw them. Women taught me that kolams are made to do something beautiful, to invite, welcome, and host Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth, good luck, well-being, and alertness. To banish, unwelcome, and de-host Mudevi, the goddess of poverty, misery, bad luck, sickness, and laziness. To catch the negative effects of the evil eye, jealousy, and envy of those who intend harm, both those you know and strangers. To embody Ganesha, the elephant-headed god, the remover of obstacles to indicate auspiciousness and well-being, and to prevent suffering and death, to play with women competing among each other for the best designs, to show one's intimate love for God, to be like the ninth century girl woman, Saint Andal, who is thought to be one of the first quantum makers, 
to remember and ask for forgiveness to the earth goddess Budevi for our walking and stepping on her, to feed a thousand souls and so much more. Um, and then I want to read something from the last chapter, A Ritual of Generosity. Um, and this last chapter is about these three clues of the feeding a thousand souls. There's a lot of stories in here from the one from the Mahabharata, especially. Um, but so, so this story refers to this, this particular paragraph refers to the idea of disciplined giving, that the giving of food every day to strangers is extremely important as a moral act of Hindus. Um, and so I think that's a very interesting thing because we think about giving as kind of reciprocal giving, you know, uh, you know, you give a gift and then you expect a gift back, mm -hmm. um, right? This is really giving without any expectation of return. Disciplined giving entails a general duty to give food and hospitality, whether you're rich or poor. The moral value depends on the proportion of what you give compared to what you have, not on the actual amount that you give. The karmic value increases when you give food to an unexpected and unknown guest, and when you give food at the beginning and at the end of the day, as the first and last instance. And I should also mention that um, in the old days, like even in my mother, my mother just turned 85 this year, even in her time period in the, in the 40s, when she was growing up in the 30s and 40s, um, the column was also done at the end of the day. It was yeah. done at dusk. And so it was done as a way to actually say goodbye to Goddess Lakshmi, mm -hmm. for serving us to be alert in our body and to actually welcome Mudevi into our bodies to give oh. rest, you know, to just to, to invite rest into our bodies and into our homes, um, which again, I think is very important that we've also forgotten to do. Yeah. The column creatively addresses these facets of disciplined giving by symbolizing and fulfilling the moral duty of giving away food. It also symbolizes and fulfills the act of giving food to an unexpected stranger. The act of quote unquote feeding a thousand souls is a disciplined way to give, and the column is a personification of this very discipline. That's beautiful. <laughs> I've learned so much about Kolam, and your book is truly, it, it is definitely will fill the souls of the readers. I'm positive about it. Thank you so much for taking the time to provide uh, insight into Kolam and what it embodies and beyond just connecting the dots. I think uh, so I saw some of the photographs that accompanies uh, the pages of your book and each of those photographs you know, so beautiful and tells their own story about women who create this uh, ritualistic art. I will for sure proudly display this book on my coffee table. It was an <laughs> absolute pleasure talking to you today, Dr. Nagarajan. Yes, and same here as well, Nandini, and good luck to all the good work you're doing. Thank you so much. I hope you all enjoyed how Professor Nagarajan eloquently talked about the column and I'm sure so many of you are pleasantly surprised that there's so much more to this art form than what meets the eye. Her book Feeding a Thousand Souls Women, Ritual and Ecology in India an Exploration of the Column is available on Amazon and other booksellers. You will surely enjoy every page of this artful history guide. She has done a TEDx talk on Kolam as well. Check it out on YouTube. 
After listening to Dr. Nagarajan speak about kolam and its significance, I was wondering how do we preserve and pass on this age-old art form to our kids and future generations. I came across a children's book on kolam. The author Anuradha Anant creates a simple yet touching storyline using kolam as a bond between a grandmother and her grandchild. The very first page brought a smile to my face. There's a beautiful illustration of a bird with eager eyes looking at a bowl of rice flour that is being used to draw the kolam. Anuradha studied literature, journalism and communications in India and has worked in television and theatre for 15 years. She is currently based in Potsdam in Germany where she, she lives with her journalist husband and three-year-old son. As a full-time mom, she continues to pursue her passion for writing children's books. Her adorable son is now an inspiration. Just like Professor Nagarajan eloquently told us about the karmic or socio-cultural duty we have as humans in terms of feeding others, other souls, and that includes not just humans, it includes animals, insects, and birds. Such a beautiful traditional art with a secret, almost hidden ritual, caring for another living being, isn't it? Now that you've heard so much about Kolam, what is the first thought that comes to your mind when you uh, think about this art form? For me, it feels like a Kolam design feels like a warm welcome. Think about it while we hear Anuradha's thoughts on it. Right now, it would be a feeling of deep nostalgia and painful homesickness because I live away from India. I live in a city called Potsdam in Germany mm-hmm. and uh, due to the pandemic I've been cut off from travel uh, I haven't been home in two, two, two years so when I look at a column now I must say I get very emotional and very very um, homesick but in an overall sense what a column evokes in me is a sense of profound joy and a profound sense of connectedness and rootedness to my culture it's just such a happy illustration of uh, of, there's just so much significance in a column and I think it's a marrying of mathematics and art. So, you know, my uh, my inspiration was the Mailapur Arts Festival in Madras. So every um, dis, um, January in Malgari, there is yeah. a, uh, an arts festival in, in Mailapur, which is known, which is really the soul of Chennai near the Kapalishwara temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, on two days, they have column competitions. So they have about more than a hundred people I think men and women mm-hmm. old and young and kids and everything participating they just draw columns on the street on the main street and if you look at it from an aerial perspective it is just absolutely stunning in fact you can see it on their website mylapurfestival.com you could see pictures of this um, of the way they do this column um, uh, competition so I used to be a TV journalist when I lived in India and I would cover you know, various happenings in the city. And for many years, I covered the Mailapur Festival and I thought, what what a wonderful thing. And I looked for um, books, children's books on columns and I didn't find anything. So I thought, why why don't I write one? And 
I wrote it in 10 minutes, okay? I wanted it to be a pictorial book, not a text heavy book. So it was just one line of text for each page. Yeah. And then after I wrote it, I thought, oh my God, this, no one's going to be interested, you know, it's so childish. <laughs> and then I uh, happened to be talking about it to a friend of mine who was working for Tulika Publishers. And yeah. she said, why don't you show it to me? And I showed it to her and she said, this is just perfect for little children, you know, yeah. an introduction to this art form. So she took the book and it uh, took my text and they found my illustrator, Shailaja. Mm -hmm. Shailaja did the illustrations and I saw the final product and it just made me so happy. So that was my inspiration, the, the Mailapur Kolam competition. When you hear the word coconut, the first thing that comes to most of our minds is an Indian cuisine or a sweet dish, right? Anuradha has taken this everyday staple in Indian kitchens to weave a story on another little-known traditional art, the art of making coconut dolls. Book is titled A Nutty Story, The Art of Making Dolls from Coconuts. So that idea came again from my both my grandmothers who were very, very creative. Uh, they used to make dolls from the coconut, the hard coconut shell, but mm -hmm. also the kernel inside once it's dried. In Tamil, we call it kopre or mm -hmm. in Canada, kobri. Kopri, yeah. yeah. So they would take the whole thing and carve, you know, designs on them or even sometimes stick little sequins and buttons and colorful ribbons and make dolls out of them, dolls and animals. And these would be kept as part of a wedding trousseau or, you know, on the tambulam plate. Wow in front of the gods on, on festival days. And sadly, I mean, this, this, this was an indication of how creative the women were mm -hmm. in, in that household, you know? So when you kept it as part of the wedding trousseau, it was like an act of impressing the, yeah. the other mm -hmm. side, okay? Mm -hmm. But, you know, we can't do it. Sadly, even I can't do it. I, mm -hmm. I, it's a dying art form. So I thought I wanted to write about this, but you know, I lost both my grandmothers a while ago and, and I dedicated this book to them and I wrote it in their memory. I am hopeful that more writers like Anuradha Anand will continue to bring back some of these lost and forgotten art forms and help bridge the cultural gap for our future generations. Putting together this episode on Kolam was truly been like a therapeutic meandering of the mind. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Putting together this episode on Kolam was truly been like a therapeutic meandering of the mind. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But many people around the world may be struggling to cope during this time of the year. For those of you who are homesick for family and friends, mentally and physically drained, grieving a loss of a loved one this year, trying to hold it all together, worried about what next year holds, or simply trying to feel the magic of this festive season. I send you much love. Merry Christmas and have a happy new year. Talk to you all soon in the new year with another episode of the Stories Between the Lines podcast.